This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lee McIntyre, who is a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University, and an instructor in ethics at Harvard Extension School. He holds a BA from Wesleyan University and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Michigan. He has taught philosophy at Colgate University, Boston University, Tufts Experimental College, Simmons College, and Harvard Extension School. Formerly executive director of the Institute for Quantitative Social Science at Harvard University, he has also served as a policy advisor to the executive dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard, and as associate editor in the research department of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Lee is the author of Philosophy of Science, The Sin Eater, The Scientific Attitude, Post-Truth, Respecting Truth, Dark Ages, um, Laws and Explanation in the Social Sciences, as well as his most recent book, How to Talk to a Science Denier. Anyway, Lee, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So you have definitely been a prolific writer and written a number of wonderful books over the years. Um, but before we kind of get into your most recent book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, which I think that we can all benefit from in today's post, uh, post-truth environment, I'm just really curious how you to learn about how you first became interested in philosophy as well as science. Yeah, it, it goes back to my childhood. Um, I um, neither one of my parents went to college, but they had they wanted their kids to go to college, and we had some uh, a lot of books in the house. And my very favorite book was the World Book Encyclopedia. And my dad always told me, if you just have that set of books, then you'll know everything because you know everything is in the encyclopedia. And I took that seriously. And I mean, there were days when I would just read the encyclopedia. And I was always fascinated with um, the scientists and the philosophers and the writers. And I guess at some point it must have occurred to me that not everybody gets an entry in the encyclopedia, but that these people did. So they must be doing really important work. And that was when I just started to think about, you know, someday that I wanted to do that kind of work. Went to college. Um, got was already interested in the sciences and then got interested from there in the philosophy of science and was an academic for uh, many years and then wanted to start doing public philosophy where not just being a philosopher of science writing for other philosophers of science i felt like science was under attack and that uh, scientists could 
defend themselves, but weren't really in some ways. And philosophers of science think about what's special about science. And that's what I wanted to start writing and talking about. So would you say that you always had an interest then in philosophy of science, or was it kind of like an interest in general philosophy, and then you gravitated towards the philosophy of science just because you also had an interest in science um, as well? I remember the day it happened. It was <laughs> philosophy of science that started me. And then and then I, I had to study the rest of philosophy in order to keep doing philosophy of science. And so I did. Now, of course, I, I love philosophy, but at first I sort of resisted because all I wanted to do was philosophy of science. I was up on the uh, third floor of Olin Library at Wesleyan and had been assigned to read an essay by uh, the famous philosopher of science, Karl Popper. Uh, the essay was a speech that he'd given called uh, Conjectures and Refutations. And that was it. I mean, I remember where I was sitting. I remember what the weather was outside. I remember the color of the carpet. Uh, that was it. I read that article and said, I'm going to be a philosopher of science. Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting that you say that. Yeah, Karl, po Karl Popper is, I think, one of the most famous philosopher scientists of like the past century. He, he really is. I mean, he it's, it's not like it was... Uh, I was reading some obscure figure. I mean, anybody in the field uh, knows who he is. And he's just, he's such a compelling writer and thinker. And there was just something about kind of the romance of the story that he told, because it, it was a speech that I was reading. And so he did a little bit of autobiography in it and talked about his uh, interest in the demarcation problem and his interest in, you know, what was special about science. And at the time I was taking, and I think maybe this was the course it was assigned for, an economics course, where the instructor was saying that economics couldn't be a science. And I started to think about, well, why can't it be a science? What's the matter with economics that it's people don't consider it a science? What is science anyway? And that's where I got started. Yeah, the, uh, the demarcation problem between science and well, usually it's science and pseudoscience or, su or science and non-science. Um, it's a super interesting, uh, deep philosophical um, exploration. And it's mm -hmm. something that even continues to this day. But um, yeah, so philosophy of science. Okay, were you always interested in like a general philosophy of science? Or was there a particular field in particular that you gravitated to? Because I know that within the mm -hmm. field of philosophy of science, uh, many of the, I want to say many, I, I just, I know that some end up specializing in a specific area. Like for example, maybe some go on and they also study physics in depth mm -hmm. and then they work on problems in quantum mechanics. And of course I'm biased here because I have a background in physics. So that's why I'm curious. Mm -hmm. uh, but did you just, were you just interested in like a general philosophy of science or did you want to go down like one particular path and study that particular branch yeah. of science and the philosophical underpinnings of it. The, the branch that really got me started on it was the, the social sciences, okay. because that question of, uh, because I did have a, a little bit of a background in uh, physics from high school and started college thinking I wanted to be an astronomy major. And so to be able to compare why astronomy was a science, but why economics was not a science, he claimed, was very interesting to me. But, and I mean, you can see how that got me interested in the philosophical question behind it. it. It turned out that I wasn't really very 
good at astronomy. I loved astronomy, and to this day, I you know I I just I love going out. I have an app on my phone where I can go out and look at the constellations and figure out what you know everything is. And so I'm 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 very fond of physics and astronomy. But the th the question that really pulled me into philosophy of science was what's so different about the social sciences? And my answer was, there really isn't anything that should be different. Um, and so that got me into some of the really hardcore questions in the, in the philosophy of science, focusing for the most part on the question of explanation. That's the big question in philosophy of science. What does it mean to offer a scientific explanation? And, and I'll say this, to this day, um, that question still fascinates me because when I get mail from science deniers who are irritated with me, um, they often reflect not just their uh, lack of understanding about whatever the specific topic is, you know, climate change or whatever it is, but also how science works. They, they seem to have this idea that science has to be perfect, that it has to offer proof and certainty, otherwise any explanation is as good as any other. So that question of what's so compelling about a scientific explanation, when it just inevitably is going to fall short of proof, that to me is, is really interesting. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it is a very interesting question problem to explore. And I know that as a scientist myself, I always felt a bit shorted in my training because I never had the philosophical um, under um, the, the philosophical training that mm -hmm. I think that all scientists should have in order to be able to defend, I suppose, or explain how exactly it is that science works. As I was going through school, um, I just never was required to take these philosophy courses. I kind of did it of my own accord. And most of my philosophical training has uh, been independent, meaning that I didn't actually go and take classes, but I did a lot of independent reading in my spare time to try to understand why it is that science worked. I had a passion for science, absolutely loved learning about it, loved doing it, but I didn't really know why the process was so accurate. And I didn't really mm -hmm. get that in my training. and. Um, so I feel kind. I felt kind of slightly shorted because of that. Mm. However, I, uh, I I did fill that gap um, on my own. But yeah, so really interesting um, that you went that route. And did, is this kind of how you ended up in the the post truth arena or area where you were exploring yeah. the the social sciences, particularly the philosophy of science when it comes to social sciences and things of that nature? Is that how you ended up in post-truth? Only by a very circuitous route. My, my early part of my career, I was very interested in this question of how we could make the social sciences better so that they could offer more accurate predictions and explanations and be a better guide for social policy to, to make the world a better place. And you know the, 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 the gnat in my ear was, science denial, all of these people who kept attacking the sciences. I mean, I was trying to extend the sciences, make economics and sociology and uh, you know more scientific. But then there were people who were attacking the sciences, saying that evolution wasn't true, you know, et cetera. So I got interested in, in you know, what's that question about? And then over the years, 
that of course kept getting worse and worse. And I almost felt like, you know, I started at the frontier of wanting to extend the sciences, you know, to other areas and ended up having to fight a very defensive uh, way just to protect science as far as it had gone because it was being attacked. And so by the time I got to post-truth writing that book, I had already, I'd written an earlier book called Respecting Truth, which was about the idea that truth was under assault, uh, you know, tr scientific uh, truths, other sorts of truths. And so that, you know, that book was, uh, you know, kind of intended to draw a line in the sand and say, you know, th this is what we should be doing. Well, then, of course, the political events of the 2015-2016 election year caught up. And uh, my editor at MIT said, uh, how would you like to write a book on post-truth? And I thought, wow, that's great. <laughs> you know, that follows up very well from respecting truth. And then as I got into the book, you know, thinking about this, what really struck me is that the tactic of post-truth which I define as the political subordination of reality. The taproot of that, the impetus, was 60 years of unchecked science denial. So go back to the people who denied that we landed on the moon or who deny evolution or uh, that tobacco causes uh, lung cancer or you know, all of those things in the history of science denial. I think that what happened is that American politicians looked at that and said, wow, look how successful they've been. They can deny the truth about climate change. If they can do that, we can deny the truth about anything we want. That's what post-truth is about. I see post-truth as a metastasis of you know, the, the ill that is science denial now into reality denial. And the really fascinating thing for me about this is that if some I didn't come up with this, but some other uh, cognitive scientists in the field have made the argument that the, the reasoning strategy of science deniers is always the same. Cherry picking evidence, uh, belief in conspiracy theories, reliance on fake experts, um, belief in uh, engagement in illogical reasoning and belief that science has to be perfect. That's what melds together all the different the, the blueprint for all the different uh, areas of science denial. It's the same strategy that's used by the post-truthers. You know, if you examine the arguments that the folks are making in the Stop the Steal campaign about the American election in 2020, or people who argue that the um, insurrectionists on January 6th were just peaceful tourists, it's the same strategy that the people were using to deny that tobacco caused lung cancer, or that people are now using to deny that uh, climate change is real. So it's all, in my mind, become part of the same thing. So I started with the social sciences. I ended up defending science. And now I really feel like I'm defending truth and reason, because the problem has gotten so bad that you know, it just an, an enormous percentage of the American population and the world wide population now feels comfortable denying truths that they find inconvenient. And that is um, a, a travesty. That's something that I've really now devoted quite a number of years and a number of books to, to combating. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's a, that's a real shame that all of a sudden we find ourselves in an environment where your feelings are more important than the facts, um, because that can have serious damaging consequences to society as a whole. Um, and as you mentioned, so this has scientific roots from, you said the tobacco industry? Yes. Um, th that case was made uh, uh, many years ago by uh, Naomi Oreskes and uh, Eric Conway in their terrific book, uh, Merchants of Doubt, where, I mean, science denial has been with us for probably as long as science. I mean, go back to Galileo and even before, uh, you know, Giordano Bruno. Um, I guess that's about the same time though, isn't it? Um, but the, the uh, tobacco strategy is something that they talk about in Merchants of Doubt, which is when the American tobacco executives were uh, concerned that a forthcoming scientific study was going to show that there was an all but causal link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. And so they gathered in the Plaza Hotel in New York City and hired a public relations expert to come in and tell them what they could do. And his advice was to fight the science, hire your own scientists, you know, in the forerunner of the American Tobacco Institute, get your narrative out there. And so they started to buy full page ads in uh, American newspapers saying that, you know, the fam famous phrase that the definitive link between cigarette smoking and cancer has never been conclusively established. Well, you know, of course, uh, if you read David Hume, the conclusive link between any two things, you know, has never been conclusively established. It's called the problem of induction. But they rode that for 40 years because all they really needed to do was to create enough doubt that they could continue to sell their product. And that became the blueprint for science denial. It was the same strategy that was followed by the uh, the, the climate deniers, the, the fossil fuel industry, when they wanted to deny climate change. It's not always an economic motivation. Sometimes there are ideological or political motivations. And it, it's actually quite a complex um, nest of the, the, the way that it works out in practice. But the strategy couldn't be clearer. Um, it's the tobacco strategy from the 1950s. And I'm really glad that you actually uh, brought this up. So the tobacco strategy from the 1950s, and then in there, you had mentioned the problem of induction. So mm -hmm. there are probably people listening right now who aren't exactly familiar right. with the problem of induction. So perhaps we could expound upon that a little sure. bit. Sure. So, so I love that you asked about this because this is something I don't normally uh, get to talk about uh, uh, on, uh, on podcasts. So the problem of, and, and I won't go on too long, <laughs> okay. now that I've said that, right, I'll, yeah. I'll give you the, the entire history of David Hume. Uh, the problem of induction is simply the idea that when you are studying nature, when you're studying any empirical phenomena, you cannot be guaranteed that the future will be like the past, or that the, you know, the areas that you haven't explored yet are going to be like the areas that you have which means that no matter how strong your evidence, no matter how solid your correlation seems to be, um, it is logically possible that future evidence could come along and upset 
you know, what you thought was a solid theory or a solid correlation. That's called the, the problem of induction. You contrast it with deduction, which is, you know, rock solid uh, deductive logic. It's, you know, if P then Q and P therefore Q. That's true no matter what else is going on in the world because it's a self-contained closed system. But empirical investigation of reality is an open system. And it's, it's so much stronger for that. If you think about it, you know, th this is a misconception that people have about science. They think that it's like deductive logic or Euclidean geometry, but it's not because scientists always have to be open to the possibility that future evidence could overthrow their theory. In fact, that's what makes them scientists. That's what in an earlier book I called the scientific attitude, being willing to change your mind on the basis of new evidence. That's a strength of science. And um, science deniers often don't get that. And the tobacco executives, I don't know whether they got it or not, but they rode to town on it, right? Because yeah. it is technically true to say that the definitive link between cigarette smoking and cancer has never been conclusively established. What they didn't say is that it's also logically possible that just because the sun has come up every day, that it will continue to do so, or that the ground won't swallow, uh, open up beneath our feet, or that, um, you know, any number of other things could happen. Not, nothing, no empirical hypothesis is ever conclusively established. And so they were um, willfully ignorant, shall we say, or, or maybe worse than that, in, in using that. And again, I don't know if their public relations executive was a specialist on Hume, but they they certainly raised doubt. And that Hume was one of the famous uh, empiricist skeptics. They raised doubt about whether you know this could be true. And that was all the American public needed. They, they only need doubt. They don't need, science deniers don't need to show that their hypothesis is true. They just need to show that there's a doubt about what science says. And there's always a doubt about what science says. That doesn't make science weak. Um, there's such a thing as warrant. There's such a thing as, you know, building up probability. Um, th this is, I'll stop there. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. No, I thought, I think that was a very good uh, quick intro to okay. the, uh, the problem of induction. And it is very interesting because I encounter it regularly uh, through the social media platforms on intelligent speculation is individuals bringing up the issue that science doesn't actually prove anything. Uh, for example, it's commonly encountered with global warming, mm -hmm. anthropogenic global warming. Oh, uh, they're only like 97% of the scientists agree. And so therefore, you know, there's still some doubt in there about whether or not humans are actually causing the planet to warm. And that's a very, very common argument that it is. is used in order to dismiss the scientific consensus surrounding global warming. And it's then you have to go into kind of this lengthy sort of response about how science actually works and that's right. why it, yeah, and it takes time. Um, but, and the average person, the the science literacy of the average person that I mean that you know this is not taught in your average K through 12 public school system. And it, and, and it should and it should be right, because what you yeah. put your finger on there is where I think that a lot of science denialism comes from. It's if you talk to a climate denier about 
you know, the latest uh, uh, evidence that, that's, you know, come down the pike from, from NASA, they're ready for that, right? They, they'll talk evidence with you all day because they're conspiracy theorists and, you know, they're, they're cherry picking evidence and, you know, they, they don't necessarily, they, they, they're able to credibly raise doubts to which the scientist has to say, well, you know, of course it's possible that, and then they've got you. The, the place to bore in is on their reasoning strategy because it's, it's that flaw where, I mean, they're technically right that it's okay to be a skeptic, but when you begin, when you take skepticism too far and become a denier is when you stop believing something based on overwhelming evidence and start saying that really no evidence could possibly convince you. That's where they leave science behind. Uh, and and it, it's a very hard thing to make someone understand that point because it feels to them like, well, of course, science should prove things. But if you read the history of science, you understand that some of the greatest moments in science are when Copernicus replaced Ptolemy and Einstein uh, overturned Newtonian theory. These are, this is how science actually works. So I, I'm with you. I think that they should teach this uh, starting in kindergarten. They should not just teach them science appreciation, they should make them into little scientists by teaching them about failure and uncertainty and conjecture and all of these things that make up real science. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's definitely lacking in society now, um, as we can see, because this is kind of a rampant problem. Um, you see this throughout all sectors of society where they're just not understanding the science and they're using these flawed arguments in order to dismiss scientific consensus. That's right. Um, so not, yeah, not only do I think that teaching like some basic philosophy of science principles along with uh, increasing science literacy uh, K through 12, uh, but also incorporating some, perhaps some informal logic, things of that nature. Yes. I've talked about that frequently on this podcast where, you know, for example, you know, you talk about science deniers using the flawed argumentation. Well, in order for you to recognize the flawed argumentation, you're going to need to know some basic uh, philosophy, like logic, logic concepts, yes. such as what is a good argument? How do you structure an argument? Uh, what are the various, the variety of common logical fallacies that are used that render an argument bad, that when an argument is rendered bad, you should reject it, replace it with a good argument, you know, just fundamental concepts from yes. philosophy, uh, logic in particular, that just aren't taught. And I don't understand why, because, <laughs> you know, we teach basic mathematical logic, you, know, you, you learn mathematics all throughout K through 12, but yet we learn nothing about philosophy. And I, it, it is just a travesty. <laughs> I, I, I taught uh, a mini course at my son's school after he had left uh, because I wanted to see if it could be done. I taught a mini course in informal logic to fifth graders and they loved it and they were perfectly yeah. capable of doing it. And you know, you could see on their face that moment when they understood you know, things that you know, sound esoteric, but they're really not. You know, I said, go home and tell your parents you learned the contrapositive today. You know, they'll be very impressed. And you know, all that they really needed to do was to grasp the idea that if you have a theory and it makes a prediction and the prediction is wrong, then there's something wrong with your theory. That's in a nutshell, the contrapositive. Science deniers don't grasp that. 
you know, often they'll they'll just you know move to something else. So I'm I'm hundred percent with you. I'm I'm all in favor. In fact, that's one thing that makes me optimistic about the future is the ability of kids to grasp some of these concepts early on and that you know we should start teaching them earlier. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm 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 definitely curious because you're optimistic about the future you just said because we can teach this to children. However, yes. as you know, something you talk about frequently is global warming. Mm -hmm. And recently that IPCC report came out, which I'm yeah. sure that you've read. And we don't have enough time yes. to basically mess around as a society. And it's really important, I guess, for adults to understand these concepts because they are the policymakers now. Like, for example, of course, we need to go and teach the children, but they're not going to be adults for another, That's right. you know, 10, 15 years. And by then all the policy changes that have, that need to be made in order to address this urgent threat to society, uh, global warming, uh, adults need to do that. So I'm just curious as to your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree because we can't wait for the kids to save us. The, the problem will be too bad by then. And, and I'm, and I'm going to speculate here for a minute. Well, the name of the show, right? Intelligent speculation. I'm, I'm going to try this for a minute because I think that even if we could teach adults some of these logical principles, it wouldn't be enough. Um, and what I, because something that I discovered for the research for my book, How to Talk to a Science Denier, is that it's not just about changing beliefs, it's about changing what you care about. I mean, people's behavior is dependent on their belief, but it also depends on their circle of concern, their community, their, you know, these normative principles about what they think they should do based on what they actually care about. So maybe I can convince somebody that climate change is real, but how do you convince somebody to care about climate change if they don't? How, what, what do you say to somebody who is just not concerned because they say, well, you know, climate change is going to get worse in the future, but I'll be dead by that. Or, you know, or I, I just don't care. Or, you know, I'm making too much money. I mean, wh whatever their reason is. But here's, here's something I just was toying, an idea I was toying with over the weekend. People don't say that. It, it's become, and I wonder if to a certain extent, some people that I think of as science deniers that that's really what's motivating them. It's just not socially acceptable to say that they don't care about climate change. They'd rather be willfully ignorant and say, well, it hasn't been proven yet. So it's almost like they would rather be a denier than somebody who doesn't care about the issue. But I wonder how much of this issue is actually about caring, not just about belief. And I mean, this is hard for me to say as somebody who's you know an epistemologist, right? I, I mean, I'm interested in the subject of belief. But I think that some of it, just as a human being, has to do with how much we care about people who live in other places or future generations or, you know, the precautionary principle, for God's sakes, right? We, these are all things that I think also need uh, to be part of our curriculum, also part of philosophy, right, if we teach people ethics. Because I, I can argue all day long about a science denier's reasoning strategy. But I have to face the reality that 
part of why they believe what they believe has nothing to do with the evidence for it or with the, the reasons or you know what they'll tell you. It has to do with something deeper than that. And, and that's what's made this question to me of science denial so fascinating because I'm, and there, there's not a lot of this in the book, though there's a little bit, because I've come to realize that it's not just about belief, it's about concern and caring. And I think also another uh, good point too is that people's identities are at stake. Yes. You know, something that you talk about frequently because you have to at this point is you have to bring up politics because, and you mentioned this earlier, you have one political party where science denial has really become a platform mm -hmm. um, for just kind of how they go out and spread messages and how they rally people around their causes and things of that nature. And when you get wrapped up into an identity and then you're trying to, you know, you're presented with new information that might challenge this identity, people go to battle in their, in their minds, of course. They do. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, physically as well with the protesting and you saw the insurrection and things of that nature, yes. people will absolutely go to battle in their, in their heads uh, to wrestle with this. Um, so the cognitive dis dissonance that it's causing, uh, and then they will actually go out and engage in physical altercations to protect their identities. And yeah, it's, the, the problem almost seems intractable sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's called but, identity protective cognition, right? People, you, you cannot convince them with facts because if you think about it, the facts are not why they believe it in the first place. There's, there's another reason. Um, and, and you're right, the reason often has to do with identity, which means that why when you attack the belief, people often react so badly because it's not just what they believe, it's who they are. And so, you know, if you're, if you're attacking a flat earther's belief in flat earth, that's not just a casual thing that they happen to believe, that is their core identity. And so the, the way to approach it, and this is something that I, I thought about it as, as I was doing research for the book and going out on the road and talking to folks, is you almost have to approach it like you were trying to convert them out of their, um, you know, identitarian beliefs, their political or religious beliefs, right? You have to be calm and respectful and listen. You can't insult them because it's not it, it, it is in a very real sense uh, about who they are. And another question I've been thinking about recently is how did it get this way? And I think one of the answers is polarization through social media. You know, we, we evolved as a species to trust the people around us for reliable information. It's a very bad evolutionary strategy to, you know, to not trust the people around you, you, you know, you'll, you'll have trouble uh, uh, getting your genes into the next generation, you know, for whatever reason, if, if you're that person in a, in a group of people. So we're, we're, maybe this is where some cognitive bias comes from. We're, you know, we're social beings and well, there's a social aspect to belief. So what happens when we get polarized? Well, maybe we start to trust the wrong people. Maybe we're in an information silo. Maybe we're, we're distrusting the reliable people and we're trusting the unreliable ones. And then it can seem very personal. And it's no longer just about doubt, it's about distrust. And the people who disagree with us become the enemy. And then we're in real trouble. Because then 
you realize, as I said, that there are no facts that can convince someone. Because how do you present a fact to convince somebody to, to trust you? The only way you can get people to trust you is, I think, to engage with them face to face, to listen, to be respectful, and to you know try to approach them as a human being. Even if you have a horrible factual disagreement with them, I think that's the only way to do it. But it is, it is, it is a very difficult thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you made a great point there that once somebody views you as an enemy, it's almost impossible, I think, to get through. Because right. at that point, like there's different mechanisms within the, within the brain that are being activated. So um, more of the primitive kind of flight or flight mechanisms are being activated. And when that happens, people aren't using their higher minds anymore. And that's really when you need to connect with people, when they're calm and relaxed and they're, they're, they're essentially their amygdala is not being hijacked. Um, to a sense where, yeah. yeah. So I guess what advice would you give to people? Cause you do this, you, you, you did this in your book, how to talk to a science denier, where you actually went out and you had these conversations yes. with individuals that you didn't agree with. So what kind of advice would you give, I guess, to the average person for engaging in these conversations? Cause most people don't want to do this because it's uncomfortable. I know. Oh, it, oh it is very uncomfortable. It, it is uncomfortable. Yes. I mean, and I've done this frequently and I still feel myself after years of training and trying to, you know, learning the logic, learning the underpinnings of science, uh, learning that I need to be remain and calm. But when I engage in conversations, even still, I feel my, I feel that uh, HPA axis, the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenals, like all of that, the fight or flight mechanisms getting activated still to this day. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's like, this is such a part of what it means to be human that yes. it, so hard to to separate these things out, even for individuals who are very well trained at it. I guess, uh, what advice would you have for having these difficult conversations? Because clearly they need to happen. Uh, yes. They really, really need to happen. So yeah. what are some of the best, best principles you could give? So after 10 or 15 years of studying this from my desk, I bought a ticket and went out to the Flat Earth International Conference in Denver, Colorado in November 2018 to see if these kinds of conversations were possible. And I, and I learned a lot. And I guess the best advice that I can give to folks is that you have to go into these conversations understanding that the person doesn't trust you. And that the wrong way to approach it is to insult them. Uh, and it's also wrong to just to be irritated, to, to, to show that you're irritated about it as if, well, how could you be so stupid and not understand that and you know shove facts down their throat because they don't trust you and it's difficult to you know have a conversation it makes the conversation more uncomfortable if they don't trust you so what i tried to do that entire first day i just listened to what they had to say which led a number of people to think that i was a flat earther because why else would i go there and i didn't lie to them i just didn't say much but when I came out the second day as a philosopher of science, because I had listened, they were very interested in what I had to say about their beliefs. And I, and I knew that they were prepared with all sorts of uh, pushback to any evidence that I was going to give them. You know, if I showed them a picture of the moon landing, they would say, well, those pictures are fake because NASA is in cahoots with, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
flat earth is based on a conspiracy theory. The, 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 the most um, prevalent one is that the truth of flat earth has been hidden by the devil. Now imagine walking into a ballroom of 650 people where they think that you're in cahoots with the devil. Talk about an uncomfortable conversation. Um, the only way that I was able to get through it was to never raise my voice, never get irritated, always be respectful, uh, try to find any common ground or humor if I possibly could. And for the most part, just let them talk because often people in that kind of a situation where they do feel comfortable because they're around their, you know, other people uh, in the social group who believe what they believe. I mean, I was outnumbered, not them. So they didn't feel threatened. Um, they will tell you why they believe what they believe. And then that presents the person who wants to push back with an opportunity to build trust through having the conversation and listening. But then when the moment is right, to then ask a hard question. Now, I would warn them. I would say, now, I'm going to ask you a hard question. And it's not going to be about NASA. And it's not going to be about Isaac Newton. It's going to be about the way that you're reasoning. And they'd say, OK. I'd say, well, you know, I've been here for two days. And all of your seminars are about scientific evidence. And they say, that's right. That's right. And I say, so, so you clearly believe what you believe based on evidence. They, yes, absolutely. That's true. And then I would say, so tell me this, what evidence could possibly convince you that you were wrong? Because any scientist could answer that question. You have to be able to make a falsifiable prediction, though I didn't put it that way. Otherwise, why should I take you seriously? And that stopped them. And, and that was my goal, right? I was not, not going to convince them to you know, leave the conference and say what a fool I was. But I wanted them to hear something they hadn't heard before and to actually listen to me. And I think that I planted that seed of doubt by giving them a question that they couldn't immediately answer. Um, and so I think if there were more people doing that, um, we could have more success. Uh, at the Flat Earth Convention, I heard uh, them crowing when they didn't know who I was on the first day, that there was a conference of physicists down the street, but they were too chicken to show up because they knew that they couldn't refute the Flat Earthers. Otherwise, why haven't they shown up? I mean, they were just, they were just crowing over this. So after I got back, I wrote an article for the American Journal of Physics called Calling All Physicists to try to get physicists to come with me to the next iteration of the Flat Earth Convention. And then, of course, COVID happened. But I, I got some takers, one uh, in particular, who uh, Bruce Sherwood, who had written a, a textbook in physics and um, was is very interested in uh, computer modeling and created a model of Flat Earth based on the Flat Earther's own assumptions which when you look at it, you, you walk into it, contradicts what they expect to see. That's the way to do it. It's, you know, it, it's just based completely on their own assumptions. And when they see it visually, they'll understand, I, I must have been wrong. But of course, they don't say that. But then the question yeah. is, why? Or they just uh, continue to move the goalposts because... I did also watch that documentary behind the curve. Yes. And how yes. they the the way that they rationalize their own experiments failing is really interesting. It uh, is to watch from a so uh, human yeah, 
from a from a psychology standpoint, the rationalization process of kind of how they go through dismissing their own scientific evidence when it doesn't fit into what they want it to. That's right. <laughs> it, it, because if that experiment had worked, they would have, uh, you know, crowed about it all day long. But the fact that it didn't work, and then they said, "Well, you know, we'll move on to something else." See that that's a failure to understand how science works. That's a failure yeah. to understand the problem of uh, uh, the, the contrapositive or induction we were talking about earlier. You have to be able to live or die by your um, predictions because as Popper famously said, that's not induction, that's deduction. If P then Q, not Q, therefore not P. That is rock solid proof. Why don't they, but they don't understand that. You know, and another thing that's really interesting too is that these aren't stupid people. I mean, right. the, the, the one individual was quite clever when he was devising the beam experiment to measure the curve of the earth. Very clever. And yes. then just going and dismissing the results of his own very clever experiment as, well, it just doesn't fit into the, our worldview yes. of, the, of the world being flat. So therefore, it, there's something The experiment wrong must be wrong because yeah. I know I'm right. Yeah. That's not the scientific attitude. You're not no, learning from, not. from nature uh, in that way. It, it, it's it's really remarkable to me because it it shows in you know bold relief. Their view is not based on the evidence. How could it be? It must be about something else than than evidence, which means that you can't just, as I said, you can't just uh, fling facts at them. It's uh, it's not going to work, and nonetheless. There is now um, empirical evidence. Uh, um, Cornelia uh, Bache and uh, Philip Schmid had an article in Nature Human Behavior in 20, summer 2019, which gave the first empirical evidence to show that you could push back and change science deniers' mind, both through content rebuttal, which is you know what a uh, a scientist would would do, and technique rebuttal, which is what you know anybody else could do just you know talking about the ways that they're reasoning so this is possible but it's difficult and i think that one of the main things to overcome is just get in the room and do it i mean people 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 avoid conversations that make them uncomfortable but i it was and, and i again it was not comfortable for me to be there but it was it was a really important two days of my life to you know, study this in the wild and not just what people had written about it, to actually hear people defend their points of view because it's the same way that people defend their views about anti-vax or you know, anti-masking or evolution, anti-evolution. It's the same strategy, the same things that they say, different content, different topic, same reasoning strategy. Yes. And we should probably mention them really quick. The five, there are, there are five kind of yes, that, um, hallmarks right. of, a, of science denial or techniques that science that's denialists right. use. And yes, and I, I went over them quickly before, uh, oh, yeah, that's but right. I, I can I say a little bit more now. So um, the Hoofnagel brothers are the ones who really came up with this, and then it was further developed by Stephen Lewandowski and John Cook and some others. And there are this basic blueprint, this basic re flawed reasoning blueprint has five steps in it. Um, belief in cherry-picked evidence, 
or cherry picking evidence, belief in conspiracy theories, um, reliance on fake experts and denigration of real experts, engaging in illogical reasoning, think of inconsistencies, and then believing that science has to be perfect. If you find those five uh, tropes of science denial reasoning, you know, there, there it is. And, and what I do in my book is I go through topically and say, okay, now we've already talked about flat earth. Now we're to climate change. Does it fulfill this template? Yes, it does. And I go through all five. Now we're to COVID denial. Does it fulfill this template? Yes, it does. And I, and I go through because it is, it is, as I said, all the same. Very interesting. And yeah, the template's exactly the same. So when it comes to, so you mentioned that there's uh, three, three sort of intervention steps that people can get involved with, the content rebuttal, and then the technique rebuttal. And yes. that's the technique rebuttal, I think I am most interested in, because that is something that absolutely everybody can do. That's I mean, right. if you if you understand, you know, the basics of science, so you, you know, you understand the demarcation principle, um, or not, excuse me, the, uh, yeah, the demarcation, so, or, or the, the uh, induction um, that science doesn't actually prove anything. Uh, so you understand kind of the basics of science's philosophical underpinnings, as well mm -hmm. as certain, some basic concepts from mm -hmm. informal logic then you can actually go out and you can then start talking like the average person. If you learn this and you can go out you and could. start having, hey, yeah, having, having conversations uh, with, you know, your friends, family, perhaps a science den uh, denier that you meet uh, at mm -hmm. a, at a work function or something of that nature. Yeah. And the more people that you talk to, I think the more, I, I want to call them seeds of doubt, but pe it'll pique people's interests, I think. And that will help to spread the message yeah. uh, further and farther. Uh, uh, further. It, it so, does. It, and yeah. it also exposes them to uh, the community of people who disagree with them. If we're just afraid to have those conversations. And, and I'll go you one better. You don't actually have to be an expert on the demarcation problem and induction, all the rest of it. You just really need to understand those five principles. In the uh, Bates and okay. Schmidt study, they give a script. They talk about what they did, and, and it, it's amazingly simple, uh, amazingly, uh, I mean, really, literally, anybody can do it. So I encourage folks to look at that study because it's really brilliant uh, what they did. Now, I have to say, it does not work every time. This study was uh, also, it's important to remember that this study was done with people who were hearing scientific misinformation for the first time, and then were immediately talked out of it. Now. My question was, okay, but what about the people who have been marinating in disinformation for five years? Can you talk them out of it? And the answer is yes, you can, though, though I, I, have, I did not do that at the, at the Flat Earth Convention. Um, but I have read anecdotal accounts of people giving up their beliefs in anti-vax, in cli uh, anti-climate change, based on exactly these, uh, uh, this kind of strategy. And what I want to do, so, so the, uh, the, the five tropes is, is you know, that's something that uh, Bates and Schmid talked about. That's the foundation for technique rebuttal. What I wanted to add to that is that if you're going to do it face to face, and especially if you're going to do it with somebody who's hardcore, your attitude counts. 
how you do it. It's not just the information. It's not just what you say. It's how you say it. Again, I sound like a broken record. Patience, <laughs> listening, calm, respect. That will break down the wall of distrust. And when you read the accounts of science deniers giving up their long-held beliefs, it is always because they got uh, approached, they finally listened to the information from someone that they either already trusted or grew to trust. People can be talked out of irrational beliefs if they're approached in the right way. Yeah, and I think that that's really, really important to highlight if you're approached in the right way. And there is an individual, which I don't think he was mentioned in the book, but I'm sure that you're mm -hmm. familiar with him, um, Daryl Davis. He's I did mention him in a footnote. Oh, did you mention, in a, did you in mention a him in, a, in yes. a footnote? Okay, I must have missed He's that. He's wonderful. Um, yeah, and I just think that there's so much to be learned from that man in how scientists or in a, you know people who want to go out and have these difficult conversations can do it and be successful at it. Because this man who was a musician then just decided to start talking to white supremacists and all of a sudden these white supremacists are leaving their groups because of the relationship that they formed with Daryl. And it's who, absolutely who remarkable. Yes, yes. And, which, and, yes. and he has been to Klan rallies. He, he says that he has befriended uh, uh, people in, in the Ku Klux Klan who give them, to, he has 200 Klan robes from converted members who gave it up and gave him their robes. I mean, if he can do that, we can talk to people about scientific topics. I mean, he's got a much harder hill to climb, but the tactics work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He is kind of the poster child for, I think, I think they call it for like, like motivational interviewing is the technique where you like really form a relationship with somebody and then you ask questions and listen. And then hopefully from there, you're able to plant little seeds of doubt and then eventually change their mind. Um, and I think that that's really where we're at right now. I mean, yeah. how, like, how concerned are you where society's headed at the moment? Like, if we were to do nothing, because, uh, like, we have, we have, you know, for example, I mentioned global warming earlier, and we really have this decade to kind of get our act together. Yes. And we have a lot of people who are pushing back against any sort of policy changes in regards to it. Um, so I'm just cur curious to hear your thoughts on this with the post-truth environment, the science yeah. denial, how, like how concerned are you as like a person and yeah. uh, where, where do we, what, what, uh, what chances do we have of fixing this, I suppose, in the next, um, in the next decade or this decade? It, it's a, it's a hard question to answer because I don't want to, I, I I, I never want to feel defeated. I never want to feel like there's there's nothing that we can do because I think that there is something that we can do. I have doubts over whether what we're able to do will be sufficient. But one of my goals in writing my new book is to try to show people that more of us can make a difference than we think. And that if we actually learn what's going on, we can create an army of people who are pushing back against science denial and reality denial. Um, because I think that that's really our only hope. Am I optimistic that 
that will happen, that we can do it. I, I'm, I've become less optimistic over time simply because the clock is ticking. And, you know, I, I read the same projections that you do, and it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem good. And yet I understand that it's not as if we ever need to say, oh, well, I guess that was our chance to solve global warming. I, we, we'll just, you know, burn all the coal we want now. It, it, it's not that way. I mean, there, there are still things that we can do. It's, it's frustrating to me because some of the biggest impediments to doing anything about climate change are not the garden variety deniers that you meet across the Thanksgiving table. It's the ones in Congress. And what's that about? I mean, do we need to change their minds or do we need to vote them out? Do we need to make it so clear to you know, the, the other people who the, most of the public understands that we can actually get better representation in, uh, in government? I'll tell you the thing that really, that really shocked me was COVID. Because to me, COVID seemed like climate change uh, on a, a, you know, on steroids. It was this fast timetable of exactly the same sorts of stakes that we're facing with climate change. It was a global problem. It is a global problem that is, you know, going to require global cooperation to do something about it. And it's a it's a threat to our life, or at least our way of life, our well-being. And yet. Even faced with that, we could not get people to cooperate enough to take the damn shot when it's available. Now, so are we going to be able to convince them to give up their uh, uh, Chevy Suburban? Are we going to be able to, and really the problem is that the governments, are we going to be able to convince the governments to do what they need for the infrastructure for, uh, you know, for burning so many fossil fuels? Um, there aren't very many science deniers in, in China, but they're 14% of climate changes due to Chinese coal. How, how, how are we ever going to solve this? How are we ever going to you know, get, get ahead of this? It's, it's hard. Um, I've started to think much more about the problem of disinformation and propaganda and its amplification through social media. That as much as you know, I've got a book to sell and I think that I've talked about the right sorts of things, we need to talk to one another. Yeah. I don't think that's sufficient. I, don't, I think even if we created an army of people to push back against science deniers, there would still be a problem. And the problem is that the cognitive bias that exists in the human brain is dry tinder for disinformation. Uh, it, and it's Bates and Schmidt show this. Once disinformation is out there, it is just going to have an effect on a certain percentage of the population. So I've started to worry much more about, and maybe this is my next book, how do we stop disinformation? And how do we stop the amplification of disinformation? Because when you really drill down into this, you realize that there aren't that many people creating the disinformation. They've just done a much more effective job at publicizing it. Uh, there, I read a, a story the other day in NPR that said that 65% of the uh, anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. The disinformation doesn't. Yeah. yeah. How, same, how can article. we possibly? Yes. And then when you drill into who those people are, you realize that some of them are making money on this. Some of them have products for sale. 
I mean, how transparent could it be? Why can't we do a better job in pushing back against this? So I do genuinely believe that we need to get out there and start talking to science deniers who try to change their mind. But another piece of that for me has been the realization that most science deniers are victims. They're victims of disinformation that was created by someone else intentionally for their own benefit. And the people who believe it gullibly change their identity on the basis of it aren't getting anything out of it. But they're the foot soldiers uh, in the, you know, the denialist army that's out there right now. So talking to them is important, but I think we need to figure out how to fight an information war. And you don't just change that. You don't just fight that by trying to change individual minds. You fight that by trying to cut off the source of the disinformation. And I really don't know how to do that. Um, there, there was a, um, there's a new training manual out of the US Army Cyber Institute um, on the future of conflict and its information war. And they're facing this as well. And you know, there, there are working groups at West Point talking about this. You know, what, as I said, the, the, the future of conflict, I wish I could remember the name of the, uh, the training manual. I've got it right, right over here. But it's, um, it's on, it's on my, my website, if, if people want to see, there's a link to it. Um, we're up against a very formidable adversary. And I think that if, as I, I said in a, a recent piece that I, I uh, co-wrote with Jonathan Rausch, the first step to winning an information war is to, uh, to realize that we're in one. And I don't think people realize that yet. I think that people who take all of these conspiracy theories about COVID seriously, it doesn't even occur to them that they're being hoodwinked by people who are creating disinformation. And yet, of course, they are. Um, some of the disinformation comes from foreign governments who uh, have been fighting American science for years, uh, you know, wanting to create polarization, wanting to create disinformation to have us at one another's throats. That's who profits by it. So it is it is maddening to, to not have more optimism when I know there are things that we can do. So at least part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to wake people up. We're in an information war. You have a role to play. You can talk to people who disagree. You can vote for better people in office who are not truth deniers. And on our government needs to begin to take more seriously the problem we all do of disinformation and its amplification, because that's what's really hurting us. Yeah, absolutely. And you and you and you mentioned the fact that these individuals who fall for the disinformation are victims. And I, I think that that is, I mean, I categorically agree, and it's not said enough because people are so angry. So yes. for example, taking the pandemic the individuals with the vaccine That's are right. so angry at the other side for not getting vaccinated. But many of these people fall into our victims or the vaccine hesitant. Right. They're not like hardcore vaccine deniers uh, or anti-vaxxers, however, whatever pejorative or <laughs> that you'd like to use right. to classify them. Uh, and, and that they're just victims of disinformation. Um, so they probably could be swayed out of that if you just sat down and had a conversation instead of just calling them names. Or something of that, that nature. That's right. They yeah. can be pushed. I mean, um, deniers are created. 
You know, they, they, if, if they're disrespected and insulted, and then they begin to look for a community online that makes them feel smart and like they belong, they're going to find it. Yeah. And then, and then that's their community and that's who they're listening to. And that's where they're getting their information. And it doesn't get any better from there, right? It starts with questions. It evolves to, I'll just do a quick Google search. Um, and it ends with them going to anti-vax conventions or flat earth conventions or, you know, where then it's too, in some ways too late, right? Because then you're with your people, you're with, you know, the, again, the social aspect of belief, then it's not just, yep. you know, I'm, I'm watching a YouTube video and I can't figure out why it's wrong. It's now I've gone to a seminar in which all of these really smart people, and some of them are very smart, are telling me why I shouldn't trust the CDC and why, um, you know, there's, you, I can, there are these three cherry pick facts about climate change that the scientists can't answer or you know other things i mean it is it is heartbreaking and yet i'm human too and i feel the same anger at how can you know because they're they're not just hurting themselves they're they're hurting the rest of us mm -hmm. um the, the people are very angry about uh, about covid right now and it's in some ways the kind of the best and the worst time for this book to come out because I knew COVID denial was coming and I've got a chapter on it, but it is, um, and I'm hoping that the book can help people to feel like there's something that they can do, but the stakes have gotten so tremendously high that it, um, it's, it, it's quite upsetting. And, and, it's, and it's led to some reaction, I have to say, as well. Yeah, and real quick pivoting back to the uh, disinformation dozen and cutting off these sources of disinformation because it's you know it creates these army of deniers or conspiracy theorists etc who are, again are victims of it yes but because of laws in the united states these individuals are not legally culpable and that is yeah. one of the great failings of our current system in my opinion so you have these individuals who are spreading disinformation so lies about the pandemic for personal gain it's literally costing people their lives and they can do it with impunity and i just that to me that i i don't know how it's it's it's, it's a hard it's a hard yeah. question because it runs straight up against the question of free speech and governmental yep. censorship absolutely but i and i but i think people have gotten their their foot caught on that not realizing that private corporations, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, are not subject to that. Uh, uh, the, the free speech, the protection of free speech under the First Amendment, the Constitution, is about governmental censorship. Twitter and Facebook are free to deplatform people for whatever reason they want at, at any time that they want, and have done so on on particular things. It's just that they're not doing enough of it. I, I think yeah. that they got a little bit behind the problem. And I'll give you an analogy here. Again, we'll talk about caring for a minute. Uh, when I'm out giving speeches, uh, and the, you know, the bigger the crowd, the better when I ask this question, because it makes the point. I'll ask in the crowd, how many of you have ever seen porn on Facebook? And nobody ever raises their hand. 
And that's because Facebook scrubs for porn. They have an office of human beings. It's got to be the worst job at Facebook, <laughs> dedicated to scrubbing for terrorism, you know, uh, um, pornography, beheadings, you know, all of the stuff that you never see on Facebook, because they care so much about that, that they will not let it onto their newsfeed, which raises the question of if they cared that much about people dying from disinformation about ivermectin, couldn't they do the same thing there? So, it, it, and I mean, they can't claim, oh, well, that's too big of a problem. Porn is a pretty good percentage of the internet. I mean, that's a big problem as well. They, they, the, the, the problem I think here is um, caring enough. Okay. For whatever the motivation is, you know, whatever, whatever the, 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 I think they need to begin to realize that it's not just the creation of disinformation, it's the amplification. Without the amplifiers, the disinformation wouldn't do any good. Re remember the guy on the street corner um, before the internet who claimed that we hadn't gone to the moon. You know, he was handing out mimeograph sheets. He, he, what, what else could he do? Now that guy has got a website and followers on Twitter and Facebook and couldn't maybe even have a convention. That's the problem. It's, it's not just the creators of the disinformation, which there are very few, but the amplifiers who, you know, take it out, uh, a, a disinformation doesn't. I mean, I, I just quoted you the statistic, 65% of the disinformation. How did that happen? Because it's allowed. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, you also made the comment earlier that with the, dis <laughs> the, dis the disinformation that people, the cognitive biases, they're just kind yeah. of hardwired to just soak this information in and then it starts activating all sorts of defense mechanisms and they, yeah, it's, it, it's really, really interesting, uh, but also damaging, uh, very damaging. It, clearly. it is. It, it, dam it damages us, I think, in a way that's been overlooked as human beings, not just to our lives, but to how we relate to one another as human beings. Um, the inability, the, the idea that the person on the other side is the enemy, not just somebody who disagrees with us, but our enemy, yeah. that, that's a very bad thing. And, and I think we're guilty of that on both sides of the science debate. I think that that's, in some ways, people think of science deniers as the enemy. And, you know, I use the word science denier because this book is not for science deniers, that it's an insulting term. They're not the ones who are going to read this book and be convinced. And, uh, but, but I'm writing it for people to understand that they do need to get out there and engage with others for all of our sakes, for our humanity, and it is possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that changing the language um, and not using enemy, but using the word victim. It really, mm -hmm. from a psychological standpoint, will help people to perhaps engage in these conversations more, so. Em empathy, em empathy, yeah, empathy comes from, from yeah. that. If you see somebody yeah. as a victim, then you have more, uh, more empathy, yeah. that's right. 100%. Uh, anyway, Lee, it's been fantastic talking to you. Oh, uh, it's I agree, been a, thank it's you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Uh, where can people connect with you online? Where can they find your books? Um, are you on social media? All of that. I, I'm on social media. Um, uh, the best possible one-stop 
place to find me is my website, leemcintyrebooks.com. There you can have a link to any of my books, keep up with um, uh, past events and forthcoming events, links to all of my uh, publicity events, uh, uh, podcasts, TV, radio, other things that I've done. And also, um, you, my email address is there. So if you want to contact me with a, uh, with a question. So it's really, uh, I've even got some, uh, some pictures from the Flat Earth Convention and from my trip to the Maldives and, you know, other to talk to uh, people about climate change. So, you know, there are, uh, there's a lot on the website, leemcintyrebooks.com. Fantastic. And for somebody who would like to get started, perhaps, in doing that second portion of technique rebuttal, yes. so you've written a number of wonderful books, which, I mean, would you say starting with maybe post-truth um, and then reading the, your next book, The uh, Scientific Attitude, and then perhaps your latest, How to Talk to a Science Denier, or is there one yeah. in particular that you would recommend? Are there other books that you would recommend? Um, that the, you've written? The, those three books are kind of a trilogy, and it's nice okay. to read them in that order, but I don't pretend that, you know, ev that people are going to do that or that they want to do that. Mm -hmm. I would say people who really want the quickest way to see how to get started is to start with my current book, because okay. it, is, it is written as all of those books are for a general audience. But this is about my conversations and about other people's conversations. And there are, um, and I, I give a rather extensive discussion of the uh, Bates and Schmid article in there and kind of break it down of what science denial is and how the technique rebuttal works. And so there's no substitute for reading the study itself. Um, but uh, the, the next best thing to that is to read the uh, half a chapter on that in my in my book, which will get you up to speed. And then there's some other popular accounts. It's quite exciting that you can learn how to do it. I'm I'm uh, I had somebody ask me one time, and, and I'm actually beginning to work on this, on a, a video of you know what to say to somebody across the Thanksgiving table who doesn't think that climate change is real. What can you say to them? And uh, you know I'm I'm thinking about this now. I'm thinking about how to get more people motivated to do this kind of thing. It's important and we need to do it. Everyone, uh, everyone who is in, in science's corner needs to go out and start having these conversations. So it's uh, um, the future of uh, society as we know it may, may very well depend on it. It, it so may. Need, yeah, it very, very well may. Uh, anyway, folks, uh, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I know that I did. Of course, please feel free to share it. You know, go ahead and hit, hit that like button, reach out to us with any sort of feedback, and stay tuned for more great content coming your way. Take care.